you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode three of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and Editor of Decisis.ie. Well, last week, you may remember, we had a long interview with Karen Harty, the Head of Litigation at Denton Solicitors. Mark, people really enjoyed that interview? I think so, yeah. It was really interesting. But we never asked her about her favourite movie or favourite book. We didn't. We we, better make make sure we do it today. uh, We'll post it up online. Yes, yes. Well, that's it because now that's very important, very important. Anyway, this week our guest is Simon Mills, Senior Counsel, who's one of the Law Library's leading medical negligence experts. He's going to talk to us about the latest developments in MedNeg law, as well as the regulation of professions. He wears that hat as well. And he's a lot to say about that. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing from him. Before we get to that, Mark, in keeping with tradition, you have identified three very interesting cases from the Decisis website. Again, in keeping with the theme of today's show, the first is a MedNeg case. This is a High Court decision from Mr. Justice Heslin. It's called TB and the HSC. In this case, the plaintiff claimed to have a plethora of medical health issues, which she was blaming on various doctors and health providers. However, she failed to provide the all-important independent medical report to back up her claims. That's right. Now, I think this is an indication of the dangers of uh, lay litigants bringing their own cases, um, because this is somebody who clearly felt very bitter about her treatment by the medical profession, um, whether rightly or wrongly, we'll, we'll never know. Um, but uh, basically, if she had a cause of action, it arose in 2011. She brought the action in 2018, so it was on its face statute barred anyway. But the other issue is that if you are bringing a case against any professional, you are virtually in every case required to get a report from a similar professional giving an opinion as to the standard of care that you've been given. And the reason for that is that it would be very easy for somebody who's not happy with a professional, whether it be an accountant or an architect or a doctor or a solicitor, to issue proceedings and make all sorts of scurrilous allegations against that person. And the courts have said you can't be defaming professionals under the cover of court proceedings so that for certainly for a solicitor and barrister, it's considered uh, effectively poor professional performance to issue proceedings unless you have such an expert report. Now, that's judge Judge made... Heslin was Mm. sympathetic. Like he did say Mm. that um, he had no doubt that this woman was generally, genuinely aggrieved at what had happened to her, but she didn't produce any data. She may have been subjectively aggrieved, but uh, the the height of her her objective evidence was that... um, she said that she had spoken to a doctor in Monaco who felt that she might well have a case, but she she had nothing in writing. Okay. Now, he used the nuclear option in this case, and that's to strike out proceedings for abusive process. That's right. And that's very rare. Will you explain why that's so rare? Well, the reason that that's rare is that, um, generally speaking, if somebody has an arguable case, they're entitled to bring it to hearing and for, for the court to determine it. Um, and so it's only in very rare cases where the, the courts say, this is a case that simply cannot succeed. Therefore, it has to be struck out at an early stage. And that can be for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's because of delay where it's either statute barred or because it's simply unfair for the defendant to have to defend the case. Sometimes it's very obviously what the term they use is frivolous and vexatious. Yes. You're bringing a vexatious case. Um, And sometimes there's what they call an abusive process. And very often that's where For example, an issue has already been determined in one action and the plaintiff tries to have a second bite of the same apple by issuing proceedings, effectively trying to relitigate the same thing. Okay, very good. Okay, let's move on. Next, we're going to look at a costs ruling in a wardship case. This case, Best and Gusa, I think it is, uh, was a decision by Ms. Justice Baker, who's normally sitting on the Supreme Court, but I think she was sitting in the Court of Appeal for this one. Or was it the one, High no, Court? No, she's actually sitting in the High Court. So she, but I she, think she might have okay. a history with this particular case. Okay, so she's stuck because with that. Because it was actually the third judgment in this case. Okay, so, she, um, so, so that made sense. That's why she came back down. Yeah. So in this case, the plaintiff was a ward of court and the proceedings were, were taken by his mother and sister. Yes. You're going to tell us are the committee. Uh, and they weren't happy about some shares and money that he had and property and real estate was being managed. Yeah. Now, it's important to say when you're a ward of court, 
you effectively um, are subject to the supervision of the president of the high court. There's a term that there's an old Latin term they use. You know, we love our Latin terms, uh, parents patriae. So basically, the, the 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 president of the high court is considered effectively the parent of people of unsound mind when they are made wards of court. But in order to look after their day-to-day affairs, they appoint what's called a committee. And that's not a committee as in a b- bunch of people. It's the person into whose pair they care. They're committed. So, so in fact, there's two committees in this case of the, of the ward. And th- their concern was that there was a, a, a share portfolio being looked after by a particular firm of stockbrokers. And the, they felt that they weren't getting sufficient information. Now, in trust law, if you're a trustee, you are obliged to keep accounts. And obviously, whether this was considered a trust situation, I'm not entirely sure. But certainly, if you're a stockbroker and you're managing somebody's share portfolio, it is reasonable to show that you have accounts and a record of the decisions that have been made. And in 2018, an order was made against this particular firm of stockbrokers that they really needed to provide better... We can name them, can't we? It's publicly Bloxham Stockbrokers. Yeah, well, they... Share the, it with the world, Mark. Yeah, but they, but anyway, in the first judgment, they felt that, that, that uh, accounts ought to be provided. Two years later in 2020, that was a 2018 judgment, 2020, they did provide the, the accounts having received th- a th- a th- effectively third-party advice from another expert. And the judge was satisfied at that stage that there was sufficient information, that matter okay. didn't need to go any further. But she did say that the firm of stockbrokers should pay the, the yeah, so, so for, for the third-party uh, experts. But the most recent decision concerns the costs. This week, okay. So that concerned costs, okay. Yeah. And what I thought was interesting about this was it brought into question the nature of a partnership. Who is liable for the costs? And the partners and those that had retired from Bloxham's and were off playing golf or maybe sailing their yacht or doing whatever they were doing were also liable because they were still part of their partnership. If you're part of the partnership, you are liable for the for the wrongdoing of another partner in the partnership, exactly. Okay. And Mark, I suppose it's important to point out that Bloxham at this point in time was in liquidation and no longer trading. That's right. They, they were no longer trading. And so I think the, the issue was really as to whether the, the costs of this litigation should come out of the, 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 the liquidated funds of the partnership. Very good. Okay, so let's move on to our third case, And this is a family law case in the Court of Appeal uh, where Mr. Justice Seamus Wolfe was sitting. Uh, Of course, he's on the Supreme Court, but he was sitting in the Court of Appeal for the purposes of this. And this concerned a high-value divorce settlement which followed on from an earlier agreement uh, and involved the creation of a trust. You might explain. That's right. So so this is a a case where um, the, the... uh, the couple broke down for the usual sort of un- the unhappy differences arose and there was a judicial separation judgment delivered in 2010. Now, it was a couple who obviously were quite wealthy. The The resource pool, as they decide, described it, was a 7 million euro. And the judge at the time decided um, that the wife was entitled to 3 million euro of the resource pool. But for various reasons, he came to the conclusion that she wasn't very financially minded. And so he ordered that, that, that a trust be formed for the, for, for the purposes of looking after those funds and distributing her with an annual income. Can I, can I just jump in? Can yeah. we put some facts, facts and figures on that? So it was a 3 million euro pot. Yeah. But the way the trust was set up, I think the wife was to receive an annual salary supposed to speak, a payment of 76,000. Yeah, 76,000, I think, yeah. 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 So, um, and the reason that he decided to describe her as not financially minded seems to have been because during the course of the marriage, the husband was the one who made all the important financial decisions and that she took a, a, a backseat role in relation to these matters. So, moving forward then, uh, because in, under Irish law, you can't get a divorce until you've been separated for four out of the previous five years, you then often have a kind of a second stage in family law proceedings. And that gives that meant that in this case, there was then divorce proceedings. And so that often gives the opportunity for, for people to reopen certain matters. And what happened in this case was that the wife in the divorce proceedings asked the judge to unwind the trust so that she herself would have control over her own assets. And the, the husband or the former husband resisted this, effectively saying, if my former wife has control over her own assets, because she's not financially minded, as found by the High Court judge in 2010, there's a danger that she'll dissipate the assets and then she will come and claim against me for further maintenance or further lump sum. Okay, was that not a very controversial finding? 
to find that she was not financially minded. Well, I, I mean, th- did that not create an outcry? I, you see, I, th- I think it was a misunderstanding of the term not financially minded. That, okay. the, that the reason that the High Court judge in 2010 had come to that conclusion wasn't because he was saying that she was in any way not of sound mind or or not capable of managing her own affairs, which would be a whole different ballgame. He was simply saying that because she had never dealt with sums as large as this, that it would be more appropriate for her to have the money in trust rather than to, to deal with it herself. Now, Mr. Justice Wolf, he believed that the trust could be, it wasn't set in stone. He said it could be reopened. Yeah, well, that was the, in, in the High Court. I mean, the, Mr. Justice Wolf was hearing the matter on appeal, but the High Court took the view that the comment by the, the, the earlier judge that she wasn't financially minded wasn't, wasn't a, a binding finding of fact, that simply that they looked at her conduct since then, the fact that she had been able to manage her financial affairs by and large in the time since she'd been separated from her husband and took the view that the trust could be unwound and that she could manage her own assets. And her husband's belief that maybe because she wasn't financially minded, she might come tapping on his door again, that didn't wash with the court. No, I think what, what they said was, <laughs> I accept the respondent's submission that the theoretical possibility that the respondent could at some future stage seek further maintenance from the appellant as a result of financial mismanagement cannot justify the reconstitution of the trust structure in circumstances where the evidence in the court below established that the respondent had established a prudent approach in the investments she herself had made with the monies over which she had control. Okay, well, there you go. Well, best to look to her anyway with that settlement. And uh, that was a very interesting case, Mark. Let's go across the water for our final case today. And we really enjoy a good old-fashioned row over art on this show And just in case you thought that Andy Warhol was the only artist to make a fortune out of the humble banana, a case from the US District Court tells us otherwise. Mark, will you please explain? So, um, this case concerns not an image of a banana, but an actual banana that was taped to a wall with duct tape. And the person who originally apparently came up with this novel idea that art could be made out of a banana and a piece of duct tape tape was a man called Joe Morford back in 2000 and he created a piece of art called Banana and Orange in which he duct taped not only a banana but also an orange to the wall. Roll forward to 2019 and Mr Maurizio Catalan came up with an artwork entitled Comedian in which he came up with the very similar idea of duct taping a banana to a wall at a similar angle to that of the earlier artwork. Okay, now tell our listeners what was he charging for this wonderful creation? He was charging €100,000 for each for several versions of this work. So it's a banana with a big lump of tape stuck to a wall. That seems to be the height was, of the artwork involved. <laughs> 100000 But, you know, somebody has claimed that he had stolen their idea. Mr. Morford came up with the view that he had thought of this idea originally and therefore is entitled to claim for breach of copyright. Wow. So he issued the proceedings and, not surprisingly... Um, Mr. Catalan, in his defence, applied to have the case struck out. Um, and as we've described already, it's a, it, 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 it's, it's a high bar to, uh, to, to cross if you want to have a case struck out. Effectively, he was saying, you can't possibly claim that you have copyright in the idea of taping a banana to a wall. But the judge said, no, you can make that claim. Can I read out the quote? You can, can I read out the quote? This is a quote from Judge Scola in the US District Court. And he said, quote, can a banana taped to a wall be art? Must art be beautiful, creative, emotive? A banana taped to a wall may not embody human creativity, but it may evoke some feelings, good or bad. In any event, a banana taped to a wall recalls Marshall McLuhan's definition of art, anything you can get away with. Can I ask you, Peter, does a banana taped to a wall evoke any feelings in you? Not really, not really. I mean, jealousy, I think. You know, why didn't I come up with that? I could have done with the hundred grand. Anyway, thank you for those brilliant cases, Mark. Silence in the fifth court. So it's my great pleasure to welcome to the studio Simon Mills, Senior Counsel. Simon is one of our leading medical law practitioners. 
Simon, I believe the third edition of your book, uh, Medical Law in Ireland, is out. And the curiously titled Disciplinary Procedures in Statutory Professions. Yet the title is easily the most interesting thing about it. Now, we love a little bit of biog in this show, uh, Simon. So can I take you back? And you happen to be a doctor. There's loads of PhDs knocking around the law library at the moment. But you are the real thing. You're actually a medical doctor. Well, those who have a PhD would, of course, claim that they are the real thing. Um, and that I'm just a, 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 a doctor out of some historical error that we get to call ourselves doctors. But yes, when I originally left school, I really didn't have any idea what I wanted to do with my life, except for a really poorly formed idea that it would be nice. In fact, I probably thought it would be a wheeze or a jape to go to Trinity. That's probably how I thought at the time. Uh, and so I simply put a list of Trinity subjects down in rough order um, of the likelihood that I might get in and uh, I ended up in medicine. And so you obviously I, did a very good leaving cert. But So medicine wasn't a passion at the start? It, it sounds dreadfully immature to say it. Uh, but A, I was, I suppose, quite immature. I, I only just turned 17 when I went to college. Um, but I, I, it just seemed like a good idea at the time. And I almost immediately realised I'd made a mistake. I think in the, in the, the first, first week, certainly, I realised that I, that I was in the wrong course um, but I just immersed myself in all sorts of other activities. Uh, the exams came round with their grim regularity and some years I passed, some years I failed, some years I had to do repeats. Um, but I just generally got through and whatever way my brain worked, it found the list learning that is really intrinsic to medicine very very easy. Okay, so great. I ended up, ended up graduating. Um, but I knew I wasn't very good. I knew I was awful. And so did my classmates to the extent that when I got my results and when I passed, they organized a petition uh, which they presented to the dean asking that I not be allowed graduate because I'd never been to lectures and therefore I couldn't possibly know anything. Your classmates asked that? They did. Wow, wow. Well, I don't know about that because you went on to get yourself a stethoscope and a bag and you became a practicing doctor. Well, correct? But to be fair, the getting the stethoscope is pretty much compulsory once you graduate. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I limped through an intern year. Um, I, I, at that stage, my eldest daughter had been born. So I, I did, to some extent, have to get a job. Yes. Um, I then got on to a general practice training scheme. And al- although I... Of all of the areas of medicine that I had done, uh, general practice and pediatrics were the two areas that I least didn't like. I, I still didn't like them. Uh, and the idea of doing them for the rest of my life just didn't appeal. Okay. So as the end of the general practice scheme approached, I started to cast around for ideas. Uh, I was away with some friends um, in South Africa and w- w- one evening... Um, uh, everybody else had gone to bed and I realised I need to hatch a plan and I hatched the idea that I'd go back and, and do law um, which had probably been festering away Somewhere in the back, in the back of my of the head because they were the exam okay, well, th- those kind of exams were the ones I tended to okay. do best in. But let, before you go there as you said you were a great debater in Trinity and you were involved in theatrical stuff were you involved in players or somewhere like that? I, I, I well, well first of all I definitely didn't say I was a great debater um, <laughs> the, uh, I did do a lot of debating uh, when I went back to UCD to do my law degree I did some acting um, and acted with a few people who at UCD who went on to reasonable fame and fortune, such as Chris O'Dowd. Um, so I, I did a bit of acting, I did a bit okay. of debating, I did a bit of writing, and, and all of those things pointed me I'm in a direction. There's, there's a theatrical side to the law in one way. I mean, you've wanted to become a barrister rather than a solicitor. But before we get to that, okay, you are also a media person, and you worked with the legendary broadcaster, Jerry Ryan. You were his doctor, doctor advice on his show. Is that correct? Yeah, I was, I was very lucky in that around the time I was finishing graduating um, uh, as a GP, uh, I started doing, I already did a column for a medical newspaper, which then morphed into a column for the Sunday World. And wow, then the Sunday okay. World had a relationship, mercifully pre-internet days. Um, and the, the Sunday World had a close relationship with the Jerry Ryan show. And so I was taken for a boozy lunch with Jerry to see if we got on. And out of that, I then became the Jerry Ryan Show doctor. And how long did you do that for? I probably did it for about two or three years intermittently. And it was an amazing way to be introduced to this sort of thing that we're doing now. The idea of um, staring at a microphone yes, and, and talking. talking to people who aren't there um, and trying to listen to questions and trying to answer them. But it had that added element uh, of uh, 
sheer randomness, this scabrous randomness that Jerry had the ability uh, to introduce into any conversation. Yes. So we'd be talking about a, a reasonably a serious, serious issue. issue. Yeah. Um, but Jerry, with a twinkle in his eye, and you could see it, and you'd, you'd have to learn to anticipate it. I'd say would there was never a take dull it in a completely different never direction. Never a dull moment. We, we'll try okay. and match that now. Absolutely, absolutely. So, like myself, I, I had a bit of a late vocation in law as well. So you decided, you said a trip to South Africa, a couple of buddies, maybe a few drinks. You said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the law. So you went to UCD. So you went to a proper university this time. Um, that, that is certainly an opinion, yes. Okay, so you went, when did you go back and do law? So I went back uh, age 27, so 1997 I went back. So I just qualified as a GP, um, so I was four years a doctor at that stage. And uh, of course I had this built-in advantage, so it, it wasn't quite as madcap a late vocation as, as some things might be, um, because I had this great part-time job in the background where I was um, I was able to work a couple of weeks a year, a couple of months a year or whatever, or a couple of, sorry, a couple of weeks a month or a couple of months a year as a GP. Um, and this was back in the days when mortgages were manageable. So it was easy enough to, to survive. Um, and no sooner had I started law than I realised, I ah, know this. So the penny dropped this, with this, law. This I, this I like. Great. Um, and that all made it much easier. Okay. And it was always the bar, Simon, I presume. I think so. Although it wasn't such a done deal that I applied to the King's Inns when I decided I wanted to study law. And I think that was probably for two reasons. Um, the first is that a law course in a in a university was going to offer you a far wider range of subjects to study. Uh, and I was doing it in part out of academic or intellectual curiosity. So I was able to do courses like law and philosophy and law and political theory and, and, and things like that that you wouldn't be able to do yes. in the King's Inns or in a vocational course. But the other thing is I wasn't absolutely certain a, that I wanted to practice at all, yes. or B, that if I did want to practice, that it would necessarily be uh, as a barrister. But once I'd done a few moot courts and sort of rediscovered the world of debating again, which I did, which I did in UCD, um, I thought, no, I've, I've got to, got to so give this a this is again. it. Oh, well, and to, to great success, Simon. And just can I just ask you, as I said, you're, you're a medical doctor and there's a few of people like yourselves who went down the medical route and then decided to veer off into the law, isn't there? There's a few doctors in, in the, the law library. There are. Um, uh, senior counsel colleague Kieran Craven. Kieran Craven, uh, of course. Is medically qualified. At the time I started, Anne Cruz Callahan, um, uh, uh, I, I not, don't think she's at the library anymore, but she, she, uh, she was a doctor. Um, and uh, Dennis Cusack as well. I think he had left the bar shortly before I started, but he was professor of legal medicine, UCD, yes. also medical law. I think the only thing, I think I'm the only person to do it who did it by way of two undergraduate degrees. Wow. So that I, okay. so I went back and did the undergraduate degree to um, uh, know whether that makes any practical difference. So there's difference. Not, not a lot then. There's not a lot of doctors who've become barristers. Well, no doubt there's the half half a dozen I've left out. Okay, okay. Um, uh, possibly more. But 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 there, there aren't many. I mean, there are plenty of people who have studied the two, but maybe who haven't made the shift. So Jerry Cowley, the GP and TD, yes. he, he went to the bar, but... I remember him from Mayo. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Maybe he carried on being being a doctor. So uh, it, it's probably not so much that there aren't that many doctors who've studied law. It, it may be that there aren't that many who've made the transition. Okay. And was it always going to be medical neg that, that, that attracted you? Was that, I mean, did you want to become a corporate lawyer initially and then just found that, you know, you had a, you had a natural sort of leaning towards medical negligence law? I, th I think, like, like most reasonably well-motivated uh, people of good conscience. I had assumed that I was going to use law to put the bad guys behind bars, keep the innocent people out of jail, push forward the frontiers of social justice um, and do all of that. Um, but that didn't happen. I, I devilled with Tony Hunt who had a, a, a fantastic criminal law practice yes. um, and also introduced me to a number of solicitors who were then very good to me when it came to the medical side of things. But I think the fact that I had the medical degree in the background and people knew I had the medical degree in the background. And at that stage, I think I'd done the first edition of the book, meant that the path of least resistance, um, which has always been the path with which I have been most comfortable in life, ultimately led me down the route of uh, a largely medical practice. But it was probably, it was probably five or six years down uh, at the bar before it became really 80 to 90% cases with a doctor or a nurse or a dentist in them. And in relation to medical negligence, obviously that's that's your primary or practice or certainly what you're best known for, I think, at the bar. Um, I mean, are there any areas that are particularly live at the moment that, you know, that have there been big developments that, 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 that our listeners should know about? 
the I suppose the, the the main most recent one obviously is is cervical cancer litigation sure. because that that exploded onto the scene. Um, following the Vicky Phelan case. Yeah, following the Vicky Phelan case. And then before that, there were the Dupuy hip cases. So what, yeah. so one of the things that, that medicine has, or, or, or um, me- medical law has, is the capacity for a particular area of practice to all of a sudden throw up this new issue. And in recent years, it's been defective breast implants, defective hip implants, and then the issue of whether or not... Um, cervical screening could form, first of all, the subject of litigation at all. And then secondly, if it could, what are the parameters of that litigation? What kinds of things can you can you claim for? First of all, could you claim for the um, uh, the fact that your diagnosis was delayed? Secondly, could you claim for the corollary losses, things like surrogacy? And uh, there are cases like that that are working their way through the courts, but there's a mm-hmm. significant number of issues in those that have yet to actually be decided by court. And do you think, has it has it had a knock-on effect within the medical profession in terms of the types of um, screening that are now available? I mean, obviously, the, the screening programmes must be much more cautious now when, in the light of the cervical screening cases. One of the things that I think is probably difficult for people who look in on these cases and look in on screening from the outside um, to comprehend is that, that screening is really, really different from what normally goes on in a medical consultation. So, I mean, it's not a medical consultation at all. Normally what happens is if I'm your doctor or your clinician, you come to me, Mark or Peter, and you say, look, this is what's wrong with me. I then give you as long as it takes to try and work out what your problem is. And I refer you to X for X test and Y test. If necessary, I refer you to A specialist and B specialist. And we try to get to the bottom of your problem. Screening is about something different. Screening is about looking at samples from a completely healthy population. Or apparently healthy. Or, well, well, they, well, well they're, they're, at the time that they, 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 the population is on the whole a healthy population. So they are people who don't know that there's anything wrong with them. Let me, maybe, maybe, yeah. So in that sense, yeah, you're right, they may be apparently healthy. Um, and you are looking at them, at the samples from these people, hoping to find the early signs of a preventable disease. But the only way that it can work is if you look at huge volumes of samples uh, in a constrained time frame in order to try and deliver answers without huge backlogs developing and to try to catch the people who will have who, who have whatever disease you're screening for. And any system that is built like that is also built to fail and to fail in, 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 in two directions. Uh, one but wasn't, is, wasn't that the defence that was put forward by the HSE? that this is a screening process, there are going to be negatives, there are going to be false negatives, unfortunately, um, and therefore it's an imperfect system. So, so you know, give us some leeway on that. Yeah, and, 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 and to some extent that argument makes sense, which is that acting with ordinary care, a really good screener, and we don't need to be talking about cervical cancer, we can be talking about anything here, we can be talking about bowel cancer, we can talk about old-style screening for TB using chest X-rays. The best screener in the world will miss them. But what the litigation was about is whether there is a line in the sand whereby there are some samples that are so abnormal that not only the best screener in the world should catch them, the ordinary screener should catch them. And that it's no excuse to say, well, I'm a screener, I'll miss some. If the answer is, it doesn't matter if you miss some, this is one you shouldn't have missed. And that was the the issue that was really at play yes. in, the, in in those cases. And I don't think... And there was miscommunication as well, of course, wasn't there? Well, well that's a different issue, obviously. Yes. That's an institutional issue not related to the screening. That's Yeah, but it was part of those happened. cases. And it, in fact, it's probably the bit that most caught the popular imagination. I think, I think if the miscommunication of results hadn't happened or the failure to communicate results hadn't happened, it might not have exploded in the way that it, ex- that it exploded. Very quickly, the narrative around what screening is, what its failings are, was lost in the sense of scandal about how could you not have told me yes. what happened to me? And, and the perfectly understandable sense 
uh, of scandal that arose around that. And of course, it was just hugely, hugely emotive uh, and very, very difficult cases. But I think, Mark, your question has just provoked, uh, I think, an interesting one and a difficult one. Is it difficult at all for you, Simon? As a doctor, you know that, I mean, a lot of us think doctors never make mistakes, but I mean, doctors are like all of us and they do make mistakes. And if you're going in and representing a plaintiff in circumstances, do you, are you ever torn a little bit because maybe something has gone wrong, but you can see maybe how that happened, etc.? Not really. Um, I mean, for 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 a couple of reasons, really. I mean, the, the uh, having been a doctor means you kind of see both sides of it, and particularly having not, you know, I would be the first person to admit I was not a particularly good doctor, um, and I, I I I don't think I had a certainly not until later in my career a sufficiently developed sense of the moral seriousness of, of of what it is you do if you're a doctor and if you're doing it well and if you're doing it properly. Um, so there's always an element of there but for the grace of God go I in any case that involves an error. But there are almost no cases, not none, but there are almost no cases where uh, you have a sense that someone in the case, whoever it is, is being a chancer and that nothing happened here. Um, and that is true both looking at the plaintiff side, but it's also true looking at the defend, defendant side. I mean, most doctors who defend their cases are defending their cases from a position of good conscience. They, they went in to try to do their best that day and they either do not believe they did anything wrong or accept that they did something wrong, but do not believe it was so wrong as to fall into the category of negligence. And again, the number of people on that side who are you know, chancers in asserting that they've done nothing wrong. Again, minuscule quality. In fact, I think the case law is quite doctor-friendly. I mean, first of all, you need to to show that no practitioner of like specialisation and skill would have done what that doctor did. Isn't that fair to say? So you, you, you've got to show that they fall down a particularly low standard in order to for the plaintiffs to succeed. And secondly, obviously, there's the whole issue of getting an expert report before you even bring the case. So you can't kind of... Sort of defame the, uh, the 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 doctor under the cover of of, of proceedings, unless you've got a, a, another doctor to say yes, this really shouldn't have happened. Isn't that right? Yeah, we'll do, deal with them in, in reverse order. I mean, obviously, the thing about the expert report is true for all cases of professional negligence. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, doctors aren't in a special position there. You you have mm-hmm. to have a report in any case of professional negligence to say that that professional was by the standards of their profession. Um, uh, fell sufficiently short of the expected standard so that a negligence claim can can lie. Um, uh, and that is true. Um, but I, I'm not sure that that necessarily favours anybody. I, I think, in fact, what it does is it allows plaintiffs in particular not to be beguiled into thinking that they have a case that they don't have. I, to, be, to be honest, I think it works to the benefit of both parties that there is there is that threshold that you get over. Do you have a responsible professional who's going to say that something went wrong here? Because there's nothing worse. Uh, and it, it, it happened to me uh, late last year where um, a case got to trial uh, and on the morning of the trial, uh, an additional report was disclosed that made clear that the expert on the other side had completely misapprehended the case. Right. There was never a case. And we had always wondered how there could possibly be a case. And the expert reports in the case were very vague in concluding that it was negligence and we raised very particular issues in a report and they produced another report made it clear that they just completely misunderstood what the case is about. And that that's very rare, but but it does happen. But sorry, just to answer the first question you asked, which is about the standard for negligence. While that sounds like it's quite a doctor-friendly standard, in fact, in most areas of medicine, the standard that you're expected to adhere to is so clear that I can think of very few cases in 20 years where you kind of look at the expert reports and go, dodged a bullet there um, because of the standard that is to be applied. In in general, medicine is now, is such a precise science in, in that literal sense that it's usually reasonably clear what is supposed to be done in a given situation. And it is usually reasonably clear if there has been a materially significantly poor um, deviation from that expected standard. It is interesting, though. I mean, I, I had a look over some recent cases, how how 
many cases, once they come to trial, don't succeed against the doctor. I mean, quite a lot get thrown out of trial. So there must be quite a few where an expert has said that the, the, the doctor didn't meet the appropriate standard, but the court doesn't accept that. Yeah, but that very often turns on the doctor saying, well, if Mr. Leonard is correct in his account of what happened, then this was negligent. And it may well often be the case that one of the reasons it gets chucked out is because Mr. Leonard's version of what happened isn't accepted or is only partly accepted. But it can also be a case in which there can be, uh, it's a case in which there are in fact two ways of doing something. And the mere fact that you adopt one way of doing it rather than another isn't automatically negligence. And then sometimes there can be other issues, which is that a court will be slow to be dragged down an avenue where in order for them to conclude that there would be negligence, it would enforce them imposing a council of perfection on all doctors, which is simply unrealistic and unfair. And it's very often one of those three features which is discernible in cases where doctors uh, or any professional uh, beats off a, a professional negligence case. Can I just go back to the issue of the expert report? There's a recent case, I think of Flynn and the HSE, where the Court of Appeal held that the that although the plaintiff had an expert report, that where the defendant asked to see the report, the, the Court of Appeal said no, it's sufficient simply for the plaintiff to answer a, a notice for particulars. You don't need to actually show the report to the other side. Now, given that the courts very often talk about um, encouraging early settlements of cases and that kind of thing, is there any practical reason why a report should not be disclosed to the defendant early on in the case? Well, uh, uh, O'Flynn identified problems that are inherent in, in SI391 um, and the regime that that lays down for the exchange reports. And also as well, O'Flynn was a case with somewhat peculiar facts in that the reason why the defendant said they needed to see the expert report was because they said they couldn't understand what the plaintiff's case was. However, it was open to them at all times to ask the plaintiff to set out more clearly by way of providing particulars of the claim what their case was. And they most peculiarly hadn't done that. Sure. Um, and, I, and I think the court may well have raised an eyebrow to some degree at that. So it was really that they were trying to use the report to do a job where there was actually another different way of doing that job that was available to them and in circumstances where they were refusing to say whether or not they were going to get an expert, although the clear implication was that they were, in which case what was to stop them from getting their expert and then exchanging reports? Because what's supposed to happen is reports are supposed to be exchanged. But it's also important to say, Mark, as well, that in a, in a huge number of medical negligence cases, the defendant never sees the plaintiff's report. And partly that is due to the fact that the report, the case is investigated it becomes clear where the breach is. And without anybody having to see anybody's uh, expert reports, it's possible to resolve the case. So, But there, it is certainly true that where there is going to be a fight in a case, then as early as possible, the case should be made as clear as possible by the plaintiff. And the response to that should be made as clear as possible by the defendant. And thereafter, as soon as possible, some form of exchange of reports should take place so that people can work out exactly what it is they're rowing about. Okay. And in terms of obviously medical negligence, it's very closely uh, related to personal injuries law. Now, we know our personal injuries colleagues are all giving out about new judicial guidelines which have reduced awards, etc., etc. Are you seeing that in terms of awards given in relation to medical negligence cases? The, the, the natural history of a medical negligence case is often a lot longer than that of a... Um, uh, an uncomplicated personal injuries case. Um, so very few of the cases that are resolving uh, at the present time are ones that commenced under the new guidelines. Okay. But it is reasonable enough to say that certainly the mood music is clear when people are meeting to resolve the cases and there is a, a sense, I wouldn't put it any more than that because I, I, I haven't tabulated all of these settlements are, are analysed in any way, but a sense that there's a, a downward drift even before the implementation of the guidelines. In terms of awards. In terms of awards in cases that are being resolved. And yes. the vast majority 
of medical negligence cases. Don't go to court. Uh, don't go to court or if they do go to court, at some point they resolve, again, because their natural history in the courtroom is also different. They tend to be longer cases and very often the fault lines in the case become apparent quite early in the case, quite a long way from when it's going to get resolved and allow everybody to concentrate their minds and resolve the case without there ever having to be a judgment. And what about the role the court plays? I mean, increasingly, especially in these massive medical negligence cases where huge catastrophic injuries, etc., are determined, there has been increasingly over the last couple of years a suggestion that maybe the High Court isn't the right place for this, that it should be done by way of mediation or some sort of alternative resolution process. What do you think about that? Again, mediation has become much more common. Um, and uh, the State Claims Agency, which handles medical negligence claims that are brought by plaintiffs against state hospitals, has been at the forefront of trying to mediate cases wherever possible. Mediation is such a flexible remedy. Now, very often mediations come down to just being about money um, and they are settlement meetings with a mediator present. But there have been cases where having a mediator there and where the chance for people to tell their story to a mediator and for aspects around the edges of the case, not just the, the monetary aspects to be resolved, have been the difference between the case resolving and not resolving. So you, you, you never want to see a plaintiff who has been genuinely wronged and who has been grievously injured have to get into court to tell their story. Yes, because if that has happened, then at least some of the lawyers in the case have probably failed in their duty. Um, now, that is not always true, because sometimes there can be a case where there is simply a defence. There is simply a defence to the case. Yes. And, and, and if the plaintiff insists on running their case where they don't have one, well, what else can you possibly do? Okay. This has there, been a, there is one other, sorry, a tiny bit of, a, of an answer to that question, which is that one of the problems, of course, about medical cases, particularly complicated ones, is they're not so much about the general damages. They're about the cost of care, the cost of aids and appliances, disability, life expectancy. And very often there can be so many things to be resolved that there may be challenges in the way of informal resolution by way of mediation or settlement meeting that aren't present in other cases. And again, sometimes those aspects of the case have to at least be fleshed out in court so that one can form a view about the strength or weaknesses of certain positions. This has been absolutely fascinating, Simon. One other aspect before we move into a different direction is the role of apology. Apology is very important in medical negligence cases. Isn't an apology? People people are anxious to receive an apology and then there's also, you know, aligned with that, the, the, the notion of non-admission of liability. Th- those two factors kind of feature, I think, uh, from a distance in medical negligence cases. They, they, they probably seem like they feature from the outside perhaps more than they always do. Again, the vast majority of cases are settled without admission of liability. But here's one interesting thing, which is this, that following an adverse medical incident, the studies of medical practice, of clinical practice, show again and again that after an adverse incident where there is full and frank disclosure and an apology, there is less likely to be litigation. Very often litigation can be motivated not only because there was a wrong, but because there was a wrong that was responded to in a particular way by the shutters coming down, by being given no answers or misleading answers. Now that very, very, very rarely happens. Uh, And again, this is an area in which the State Claims Agency and the HSC have come on in leaps and bounds in the last 15 or 20 years um, in in terms of transparency and external investigations and communicating with families where things have gone wrong. Um, There's an additional sensitivity these days, I think, isn't there? I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I think so. think so. Okay, I mentioned at the start that you are the author of two very important legal books. One, obviously, Medical Law in Ireland. But the other one is Disciplinary Procedures in Statutory Professions. Please discuss. So there are, um, and and I apologise in advance if I nod off while giving this explanation. (laughs) Um, There are a number of professions which, for a variety of reasons, the Oireachtas has decided should be regulated by statute. Uh, So there's a piece of legislation that governs entry into the profession and then provides for a mechanism for those professionals to be disciplined. So solicitors, um, doctors, nurses, dentists, 
um, barristers uh, under the Legal Services Regulation Act are all in that sense statutory professions. And what that means is that if something goes wrong, um, let's say a doctor makes a particularly grave error, um, then there may well be litigation, but it may also be open for to, to a patient or an employer to make a complaint to, in the case of doctors, the medical council. Yes. And the medical council is then empowered to uh, give that case, that complaint, a preliminary consideration, decide whether there should be an inquiry. And if there is an inquiry, that inquiry takes is what's called a fitness to practice inquiry. Uh, And if the doctor is found guilty at the end of that process of professional misconduct or poor professional performance, then the medical council is empowered to impose a sanction on that doctor which may range from the lower end of the scale, advice as to their future conduct. When you bring a case in professional negligence or medical negligence, obviously, if you fail in that case, then you face an award of costs against you. Is there anything to stop somebody bringing a case, uh, bringing a complaint to a professional body that could cause great upset to a member of the professions? Um, But uh, is is there any downside for the complainant? There is ultimately no downside to the complainant. Uh, The practitioner, however, is protected by two stages in the process. Uh, The first is that it is open to the preliminary screening body to form the view that a particular complaint is frivolous or vexatious. So if, for example, a patient believes themselves to have been gravely injured by a doctor, they've sued the doctor and they've been unsuccessful, uh, and they then decide that they're going to embody the same complaint that they litigated into a complaint to the medical council, the medical council might conclude that that is a vexatious complaint. The second thing then is, even if, once they decide that it is not frivolous or vexatious, they have to consider whether it meets a prima facie threshold for inquiry. And what that means is they have to form the view that there's a real and serious prospect of the allegation being proven, bearing in mind that in all of these professional regulatory proceedings, the standard of proof is the criminal standard of proof. You have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the alleged facts occurred and beyond a reasonable doubt that they amount to poor professional performance or professional misconduct or whatever. So those protections are in place. But the shorter answer to your question is, in the event that a complaint is found to be frivolous or vexatious or is thrown out after a day's hearing, no, there is no comeback um, for the clinician or no comeback for the regulator if they've been put to the cost or expense of... uh, an inquiry that falls apart uh, if that eventuates. I see. And just, I mean, obviously the the book you wrote isn't just concerned with medical law, it's concerned with a number of different professions. Um, Does each profession have a largely similar procedure or are they all different? And is it it an area that might be streamlined? Yeah, so the solicitor's profession is is different from everybody else because um, the high court is much more intimately involved because solicitors are officers, officers of the court. Most of the rest adopt a reasonably similar um, uh, broad framework uh, to the extent that there's a single piece of legislation called the Health and Social Care Professionals Act 2005 which governs a large number of the uh, healthcare professions, so physiotherapy, social work, um, opticians, and and various others. And it's expanding all the time. Um, So there is a common framework there for all of those professions. Um, And certainly it has been suggested before. um, uh, One of of my senior counsel colleagues, Patrick Leonard, has suggested that there could be a, a common regulatory law framework. And there's no reason why something like that couldn't work and why you wouldn't create a particular uh, tribunal that hears those sorts of complaints across all professions. Going back to the beginning, you said that when you studied law, you liked to think of putting the bad guys in jail and keeping the innocent out of jail. So you obviously work a little bit in the disciplinary area where you are, in one sense, trying to keep the, uh, keep the, the innocent uh, professions out of, the, out, of, uh, out of difficulty. Is that correct? Well, that, that is true to say. I mean, it, 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 it's the area of my practice that's probably closest to criminal law because a lot of these allegations are incredibly serious um, and they, they can include um, very serious allegations of, of sexual assault against clinicians, of involvement in cases that were themselves separately very high profile. So they, they, they can, be, can be really high stake stuff at the end of which a sanction can be imposed 
and if it's imposed wrongfully, that can lead to somebody not being able to practice anymore. What happens if in, in such a, a tribunal, the, the standard hasn't been met beyond a reasonable doubt, but enough you know, grey area has arisen to be concerned about a medical practitioner being allowed to continue in practice? You know, is there a duty to it, notify anybody? Or? Well, it's a two-step process. So the first is, are the facts proven? So probably a three-step process. First, are, 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 the, are the facts proven? Secondly, do the proven facts amount to whatever is alleged? Let's say it's professional misconduct. And then thirdly, where on the scale does this feature? So you might well have a case where you go, facts are proven. This is poor professional performance, but it's at the lower end of the scale, in which case you must impose a lower end sanction. But you're absolutely right. There can be cases where the facts are proven, but for one reason or another, although there are concerns, um, a committee comes to the conclusion that it cannot find a particular practitioner guilty of uh, poor professional performance or professional misconduct. And it can be something as simple as a pleading error. It can be ultimately that they feel that there's just enough mitigation to go one side of the line. It is open to them to communicate to the Medical Council any concerns that they have, but it will not be open to them uh, to impose any sanction if there hasn't been an adverse finding, with one or two exceptions. Okay. So that under the Dental Council, Dental Act, if they have a particular concern, they can impose a, a low-end, not a low-end, a reasonably significant sanction, but a sanction, uh, impose a condition on the person's practice. But that very rarely happens. Okay, fascinating. Okay, Mark, we can't let Simon go. This has been absolutely brilliant, Simon, but we can't let him go without finding out about his movie or his book or whatever it is. We like to ask our guests, is there a book or a film that you would like to recommend to either your colleagues in the legal profession or to any law students who might be following in your footsteps? Um, As far as a book is concerned, it's actually actually a book that you told me about, Mark, uh, The Tyrannicide Brief um, by... Jeffrey Robertson, and it is a book about the poor old barrister who was given the job of prosecuting the trial of Charles I, or defending. No, no prosecuting, prosecu- yes, prosecu- he had to draft the yes. indictment for Charles I, and I think it's the, it's, it doesn't sound like a rollicking good read, but actually it really is, I think. Isn't it? Yeah, it's just a fantastic book about law, and I have a, a deep and abiding loathing of all films that are about law or about the legal profession, with with two exceptions, uh, which are the, I, I think the, the the legal scenes in uh, the Gregory Peck To Kill a Mockingbird uh, are great, um, and one other film popped into my head but has gone again. Well, thank you very much. In a fantastic interview, from my point of view, that was really really interesting. It was fantastic, and thank you so much for coming in and being a guest on the Fifth Court. Great to be here. The Fifth Court is adjourned until next week. Okay, so that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. Uh, We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Simon Mills, Senior Counsel, for coming in to us today. I would also like to say a huge thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroyne, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios for recording this show and doing such a wonderful job. If you, the listeners, have any comments or any legal stories you would like us to cover or raise with us, please contact us on our website or on LinkedIn. And Mark, again, the big request is that our listeners share and share again. Share and share again. If any of your friends or colleagues are likely to be interested in the show, please do tell them about it. Um, Share on social media. And if you have access to Apple Podcasts, we'd be very grateful for as high a rating as you can possibly give us. Um, in order that we get the word out. Well, that would be fantastic because we're really trying to build our audience. So that's it, folks. So from myself and from Mark, thank you very much and goodbye. Until next time, goodbye. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.